Hello and welcome to Please Expand. I'm Mahilius. And I'm Julia. Hi Julia, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me again. Are you excited about today's episode? Yes, very much. Well, today I'm interviewing John Gazvinian, author of US-Iran, uh, 1720 to the present. Okay, maybe we can um, get the ball rolling by talking a bit more about who John is. Yeah, so John is an American-Iranian author and historian. He is currently the executive director of the Middle East Center in the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And he, he seems to be very busy with that. I follow him on Twitter. And in fact, he's always posting about some event or other that they're organizing. And it's always, um, well, generally has to do with Iran, but also just the Middle East more general. In fact, just two weeks ago, he was moderating a conversation with the UN Special Coordinator for Middle East Peace. And what is the book about? So the book is about US-Iranian relations, but unlike most books that either begin from 1979, when the Iranian Revolution broke out, and you had the American hostage crisis, or from 1953, when the CIA orchestrated a coup against the democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, John begins his book from 1720, a very unlikely start date. And this just gives a whole different flavor to how we understand US-Iranian relations. You know, for, for one, by not focusing on 79 or 53, we get a more balanced view, I would say, of their relationships. And, and, and for another, and this is John's central point, I think, uh, we realize that uh, these two nations were not always destined to be as antagonistic as they are nowadays and that there were actually foundations for a more friendly relationship um if if i hadn't listened to the interview uh, already i would say uh, that i look forward to knowing more about this <laughs> <laughs> but i actually did have a preview so um definitely one recurring theme is the fascination that um americans felt towards Iran around the uh, 1720s. Um, what do you take the other main themes to be? So, yeah, we're going to talk about how Iran looked to America in the 19th century as a potential ally to help them against the expansionist ambitions of Britain and Russia. Mm-hmm. How religion, and I found this f- very fascinating, how religion actually acts as a catalyst for change rather than a bulwark of conservatism and how according to different needs the double identity that Iran can sort of play with as either ancient Persia or Muslim Iran was emphasized and how you know that led down to different and often fascinating roads yeah um, in fact I mean um, as far as I understood though the book is is about the relationships between the US and Iran really is also a book about um, how we can understand better the this double nature of Iran which comes across as an extremely complex definitely yeah country. as you as you said the book is as much a book about US Iranian relations as it is about how Iran has seen itself over the 280 odd years that the book covers Yeah. And so coming back to the role 
I play. <laughs> I look forward to listening <laughs> to the rest of the interview, Achille. And, uh, and yes, uh, after the interview, be sure to stick around for uh, me and Julia, who will be discussing some of the key points from the interview. And, uh, well, for now, I give you John Gazvinian and US-Iran. Hello and welcome to Please Expand. I'm Ahilius Rockney and today I'm very happy to have with me on the podcast John Gazvinian, uh, author of American Iran, a history 1720 to the present. John, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so the reason why I picked up your book was because I was intrigued by the really broad scope that you take, you know, instead of telling the story of US-Iranian relations from 53 or 79, you start all the way back from 1720. And one immediately thinks, what on earth were they possibly getting up to back then? And it was actually quite a bit. So before we get into, you know, discussing what these two nations actually thought about each other, perhaps you could tell us a bit about the motivation behind this approach. You know, why did you write this book? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and there were a few things I was trying to do a little bit differently, because I know that the history of U.S.-Iran relations is certainly not an original topic, certainly not something that nobody's ever talked about, and something that you know, this is not going to be the last book that's ever written about it. Uh, but I think what I was trying to do a little bit differently was um, get us away from some of these, look, when, when we, some of these blame game narratives, right? When we think about US-Iran relations, we tend to focus on what's gone wrong, everything that's gone wrong, why things are so bad. And, you know, and I think that embedded in that question is this implication that it's somebody's fault and that we have to find the victim and the oppressor and the perpetrator and the criminal and the, you know, who started it, those kinds of questions. That's not a very useful way of approaching history, you know, but when you do approach history that way, you tend to focus on things like 1979 and 1953, 1979 being, of course, the year of the Iranian revolution, when radicalized Iranian students took the American embassy and took its employees hostage for over a year. And then, you know, of course, the relations between the two countries were broken off in the midst of that. 1953, of course, is the year that the CIA backed coup against Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran that helped to cement the rule of the Shah. Who, the king, who eventually became much more dictatorial in his rule and arguably caused blowback in the form of the Iranian revolution in 1979. I think these are canonical dates. Depending on whether you want to blame America or blame Iran, you tend to emphasize one or the other of these, right? Everything was fine until the Iranians took the embassy hostage. Everything was fine until the U.S. overthrew the legitimate government of Iran in 1953. That, those are all reasonable ways to approach it. But, you know, the problem with that is you're focusing on where the problems began instead of focusing on the longer history of where things maybe haven't always been so bad. Because I think when you're asking, well, where did things go wrong? The implication is maybe things went right at some point. Uh, so that was what I was more interested in, in trying to find out is what the deep history was. And lo and behold, turns out that over the 200, even arguably 300 years, these are two civilizations that have had a very long history of mutual warmth admiration, idealization, fascination, contact, relationships. And the last 40 years of hostility is, is not what characterizes the entire relationship. So let's try to ask ourselves why or how things went right in the first place, if they ever did, if there ever was a sort of golden age of U.S.-Iran relations. I would argue that maybe, maybe not. So why 1720? Well, it turns out that, you know, so, so for me, it was a question of where do you begin then, if not 79 or 53, you know? 
you could begin in 1940 or 42. Before that, the U.S. is a very isolationist power. Uh, it's in the early 1940s that the U.S. begins to send advisory missions to Iran and really seriously starts to engage with Iran. Before that, the U.S. is not interested in Iran uh, or the Middle East particularly. So naturally, a lot of American historians have, have not bothered to look at the pre-1940 period. But I think that's a problem in its own way, because that's saying basically this relationship is only important when the U.S. becomes interested. Uh, and it neglects the fact that actually for 80 years before that, the Iranian government, successive Iranian governments were very interested in getting the U.S. more invested in their affairs. So maybe you begin with the first diplomatic relations in the 1850s, first exchanges of diplomats in the 1880s. That's all reasonable, but why only privilege the diplomatic political narrative? What about people-to-people contact, which begins much earlier in the 1830s with Presbyterian, American Presbyterian missionaries going over to Iran? I wanted to do something even more eccentric, which was to begin with the prehistory, the preconceived notions that these two civilizations had of each other before they came into contact, before the U.S. even existed as a country, as a republic. And I was surprised to find that in the 1720s, North American colonial newspapers were absolutely fascinated with Iran. So that's where I wanted to begin. And that definitely adds a new perspective to when we think about U.S.-Iranian relations. Let's just start a bit with this first contact, 1720 newspaper, where they're essentially talking about Iran's war with this Sunni power, which Iran is a, so it's a, it's a Shia Islam country, and people are sort of thinking about this war as some kind of proxy war with the Ottomans, who is sort of the boogeyman of Europe. Something that seemed to be a theme of your whole book was the distinction between Iran as Persia and Iran as an Islamic country. In this initial stage in 1720, the people seem to be Americans, or the people living in America now, seem to be emphasizing the Persian aspect of Iran. They don't seem to be thinking of it as Iran as this Muslim country. Firstly, do you think that's right? And I think it's a little more complex than that, but I, but yes, yeah, sure. Um, you know, there are, mul- there are multiple identities that are intersecting at different points. I think they were, but, but I think broadly speaking, that's correct, yes. And yeah, I was fascinated by this. I mean, they were obsessed with with Iran, with Persia, as they called it. 20, 30% of the newspapers sometimes were consumed with news from Iran. Uh, they, you know, I even came across one newspaper that said, oh, you know, we're, we regret that we have no news from Persia this week. <laughs> in 1724 in Philadelphia, it was front page n- news story was that we have no news from Iran this week. You know, and I thought, well, <laughs> why are they so obsessed with Iran? And not only that, but they're very, very, very vocally pro-Iranian. And it was exactly what you're talking about. They were there's some sense of, of Persia as the lesser of two evils in the Middle East. They didn't call it the Middle East at the time, but, you know, in the in the Orient, in the East, uh, because they hated the Ottoman Empire so much. The, the evil Turk, the terrible Turk, there had been centuries of crusades between Christian Europeans and Seljuk Turks and Ottoman Turks. The Ottomans were seen as being in possession of the Holy Land. They were seen as having threatened Christian Europe. And remember that for white colonial settlers in North America in the 1720s, they saw themselves as... Europeans as Christian as British subjects just happened to be you know in a far flung part of the world but they were still they still saw the Ottoman Empire as the great evil threat to Christian Christian civilization so they liked the idea that the Persians were their arch rivals they were seen as somewhat somehow less a little bit less Muslim a bit less evil uh, they liked that they were Shia and they liked the fact that the Sunni the predominant Sunni saw the minority Shia as being heretics they said that's a good thing we like that <laughs> they're not real Muslims they're not as bad as the Turks. You know, saw a newspaper that I you know, came across a newspaper that described this rivalry as being a rivalry between quote 
Persians and Muslims. Right. Okay. Persians and Muslims, as if somehow Persians are not Muslims, right? So that yeah. speaks to some some of what you're talking about, and and that was actually fascinating. But I think a lot of that lasts well into the 1970s in the United States, and this is why I began the book where I did because I th- you know there is this idealization of this kind of fantasy land to the east, to the east of the Ottoman Empire. I call my opening chapter East of Eden, because that's how they saw it. They saw the Garden of Eden as being in the easternmost fringes of the Ottoman Empire, and Persia began just to the east of that, and it was less threatening. Mm. Uh, It wasn't an occupation of the holy sites. It wasn't threatening Europe, and it was sort of a fairy tale land, and, and, you know, uh, they liked that. And I think that, you know, that you fast forward a hundred years to the first American Presbyterian missionaries who arrive in Iran, and they use a lot of the same language. They describe it as Edenic, as, parad- as a paradise, you know. Um, and even in the 1970s, most Americans, w- when they looked at the Middle East, would have seen it as something they didn't like. But what they didn't like were the Arab states, the socialist Ba'athist states, the, the, the wars with Israel that the Arab states were fighting, the, the oil embargo, things like that, Nasserism. But when they looked further east, once again, they saw this kind of fantasy land led by this very benevolent pro-American emperor you know, with his beautiful, glamorous wife and these kind of you know, crowns full of jewels and you know, all this kind of stuff, these elaborate coronation ceremonies. And it's like Napoleon and Josephine and whatever. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't see this kind of evil, Muslim, kind of angry part of the Middle East. Now, that changed, of course, after 1979. This was the fantasy that Americans had about Iran. And Iran's, Iranians had their own fantasy about America until 1953. So before we get to that, sticking to the 19th century for now, as you, as you said already, America is not that interested in Iran. Iran is a bit more interested in America, much more interested in America. And the context for this is the growing power of Imperial Britain and Imperial Russia and the sort of the forces they're exerting on the south and the north of Iran. And you talk about this concept of the United States as a third power, as, a, as a, a powerful nation that can somehow mediate or perhaps even offer a way out for Iran in this little sandwich that it is, this imperial sandwich. Um, could you say a bit about this third power and maybe its legacy? Yeah, this is really interesting. I think something a lot of people don't realize is that from the 1850s until the 1940s, this was a critical part of Iranian foreign policy for almost a century, developing a third force to balance out the pressures that they were feeling from the Russians in the north and the Caspian and the British Empire in the south and the Persian Gulf. And one of the countries they consistently looked to was the United States uh, as a potential third force. They saw the US as a more benevolent power, an, anti-rev- an anti-imperialist power. What they, knew, they didn't know much about America, but they also had a fantasy about America. Their, their fantasy was, well, America had come to, US had come to power in a revolution against the British Empire a hundred years earlier, and it didn't seem to want to interfere in the affairs of smaller, weaker countries, unlike the imperialist powers of Europe. There were Americans living in Iran, building schools and clinics and Presbyterian missionaries and things like that, but the their government had no embassy, had no diplomats. They thought, that's pretty cool. They just, they just don't, they don't seem to want to bother us. They're like a more benevolent version of the West. And, you know, it's interesting because the very first disagreement that Iran and America ever had was in the 1850s when they were trying to do their very first treaty of friendship. And one of the many sticking points was that the Iranian government wanted to buy warships, American-made warships, flying the stars and stripes and manned by American sailors to fly, to to, to sail in the Persian Gulf uh, under the auspices of the Persian Navy to send a message to the British that, oh, we have this new American ally. 
And the United States, understandably, said, no, we don't want to get involved in this. It's none of our business. That's the f- it took them five years to, fin- to negotiate this treaty, longer than it took them to negotiate the nuclear deal in 2015. Because Iran was saying, we want you more involved in our business. And the U.S. was saying, no, we don't want to get involved in your business. That's the first disagreement these two countries ever had. And I think that's fascinating because it couldn't be more different, of course, from the, the reality that we're faced with today. And it wasn't really that long ago. Yeah. If I could invite you to speculate a bit, do you think there is a realistic scenario where America could have gotten involved with Iranian politics in, 18, in the 1850s and done something? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, realistic, uh, I mean, yes, they could have, but it was would have gone completely against the entire consensus around foreign policy in the United States at the time. I mean... There was a, a widespread feeling that the U.S. should not become involved in entangling alliances in parts of the world where it has no special interests. And the Middle East was very much one of those places. It was a, a Persia was just, people didn't know anything. Even even in the 1850s in America, no one really knew anything about Iran other than, you know, what they'd read in the Bible uh, about Persia and Cyrus and, you know, uh, thing, you know, the three wise men from the East and things like that. Uh, the, and the Persian Empire, to some degree, the ancient Persian Empire. They had very little understanding of the realities of modern Iran or of the, of the Persian Gulf or the Middle East. It would have been strange for them to get involved. Not unrealistic, just strange and incongruent, I guess, with the, with the philosophy of American foreign policy at the time. Right. It would have entangled them possibly in a very costly foreign war as well with Britain. In a very, 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 very far off part of the world. It took, remember, it took two months to get from New York to Tehran. Uh, in the 1850s, 1860s, two months with the wind at your back. You know, you'd have to sail to Europe, maybe sail down through the Mediterranean to Istanbul or travel by land or train, depending across Europe to Istanbul, and then undertake a very difficult land journey across Anatolia uh, and over the mountains, uh, the Zagros Mountains, across into northwest Iran, and then another couple hundred miles to Tehran, or take a steamship to Batum across the Black Sea, uh, and then cross over the Caucasus and land, you know, in the Caspian, somewhere around Rasht, and then make your way. To, I mean, <laughs> huge, hugely difficult journey. Yeah. Um, and we forget that. You know, this was a pretty far-flung part of the world. For the U.S. to get involved, deeply involved in this part of the world would have made no real sense. And, and so, uh, and no sorry. There was no, oil was not an interest. We forget, you know, uh, the United States was actually sending oil to Iran as late as 1910. Uh, so, you know, the idea that this was a sort of uh, lucrative natural resource as well, as well was not of interest. And, and in this period, Iran is ruled by the Qajar dynasty. And you, you give a, a very, very bleak picture of their rule. They're all quite corrupt and ineffective rulers, to put it nicely. And then in 1906, after about 80 years of humiliating treaties with foreign powers, poor ruling, you've got this revolution, you've got this constitutional revolution, and you've got, the, the, as you say, the creation of the first Muslim democracy, the, uh, the Majlis. What I found striking about this, and you see this again in 1979, and you talk about this in your book, is the role of Islam, the role of religion, really, in driving revolutionary uh, desire, in, in driving the desire for change. In Europe, we're very much used to the idea of church and crown. You know, the, the church will support the crown and vice versa. 
So I just have just a couple of questions, really. What do you think there is something specific about Iran or Shia Islam that makes it anti-monarchic, pro-democracy? Or is it just something that happened in that time? Was it just a confluence of things that just gave rise to this thing that we're not really used to in Europe? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a little bit of both. I mean, and I don't want to get into this kind of very essentialist kind of uh, view of Shia Islam that kind of explains everything, explains Iran. Uh, but no, it is relevant. That, I mean, what, what distinguishes Shia Muslims from Sunni Muslims, of course, is that the Shia don't believe in the concept of a caliph, um, don't believe in the concept uh, of, I mean, actually, the purest expressions of kind of Shia Muslim philosophy don't really like the idea of a monarch or you know, a temporal ruler that kind of makes all the decisions. Um, the idea is that everyone's kind of, I mean, mainstream, quote unquote, 12 or Shia Islam. The idea is everybody's waiting for the 12th Imam, for the hidden Imam. Uh, to come back from occultation, uh, the Mahdi, um, and so therefore our, our real obligation on earth is simply to live the most moral life possible, you know, in preparation for the return of uh, of the Imam. So you could sort of see why that might lend itself well to a philosophy, a political philosophy that doesn't particularly love the idea of monarchy. Now, does that explain the constitutional revolution of in Iran? No, of course not. There's much more to it than that. It was also, you know, there were a whole other, lot of other factors, but it wasn't difficult. Uh, and it hasn't been difficult in the last hundred years for Shia Muslim clerics to present themselves as defenders of the oppressed, as, as a sort of liberationist force even. But that, a lot of that comes much later from Ali Shariati in the 1960s and 70s and later Khomeini, because uh, it, it elides with third worldist liberation movements in a way that I think is much more similar to uh, liberation theology in Central America, for example, right. um, you know, kind of Catholic priests, uh, leftist priests, things like that. You know, so it's not unheard of. But it's, uh, but you're right. I mean, typically the way we we learn history traditionally is that the, you know the state, you know, the, the the church is on the side of the state, on the side of reaction, on the side of conservatism, and it was actually that way for a lot of Iranian history as well, uh, really until Khomeini. Well. I mean, it's true in the Mashruta that you get in the Constitutional Revolution of 1906 that you do get some of these clerics who are revolutionaries to some degree or another. But they're not fire-breathing, turn down the whole system kind of revolutionaries. They're, um, you know, they're uh, they're concerned about the rights of uh, the clerics. They're concerned about uh, too much autocracy. They're concerned, frankly, about the the country giving away too many rights and privileges to foreign powers uh, without consulting to the stakeholders. And that looks very different. In the 1960s, when Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini, makes a fundamentally different kind of argument, which is to say that monarchy is simply not accepted in the eyes of God, that it's not a, not an Islamic concept. It's much further than any of the clerics in the 1906 revolution would have gone. But just yeah. a question on the relationship between a religion and monarchy in the 19th century. How did the uh, Shahs view themselves? Were they because they've also they've got this whole uh, mythology of being this lineage of kings that stretches all the way back from Cyrus. So this is sort of the Persian lineage, this is the Persian culture that sort of grounds them. But they're also Muslim kings. Uh, how are they, I don't know how quite to put it, their personality, how are they ruling? Are they ruling with a, an emphasis on the Persian side or on the, the Muslim side? Maybe question. it doesn't make sense to put it that way. Sure, no, I mean, <clears throat> a little bit of both and a little bit of neither, honestly. Uh, I mean, uh, kingship in the Qajar, and this is not my area of expertise, by the way, but kingship in the Qajar era is 
you know, it's different from kingship in the Pahlavi era, you know, and different from kingship in the Safavid era. You know, it's uh, to some extent, Iran is still a very sort of tribal society in the 19th century. Uh, it's not a highly centralized state. So this idea of Persian nationalism is something that we tend to read backwards into Qajar history that isn't always actually relevant. But they also aren't, you know, they have a lot of the rhetoric of, I mean, the, the Muslim, even though the sort of is the, the religious side of things is not everything either. It's not like they're, they're I mean, sure, it's part of the rhetoric, the, you know, the zillullah, you know, the shadow of God on earth. But, um, you know, they're, li- they're largely sort of um, primus inter pares uh, kind of among tribal chiefs, right? Um, kind of pulling together the various disparate elements of, of the societies of the Iranian plateau. It's a you know, a, a loose and relatively weak monarchy, actually, in the 19th century, although with a lot of the trappings of power. Yeah, 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 you made that abundantly clear. Uh, so just to continue with this theme a bit and moving a bit forward to the sort of the new dynasty of Reza Shah Pahlavi, you briefly mentioned him, a military man. He starts a new dynasty in 1925. Well, he's elect the government, the, the Majlis, appoint him Shah. And he's fascinating for a whole bunch of reasons. But just focusing on this Iran as Persia, Iran as Shia Islam, that tension really seems to surface with his reign, where he, he, he really identifies Islam as backward and sort of unable to assimilate into the modern world. And he wants to really emphasize, ironically, the really ancient antiquity past of Iran. Do you think, because he, he introduces some really r- radical reforms uh, or you know uh, laws against uh, Islam. What kind of uh, impact do you think that had on Iranian society leading up to the 1979 revolution? I think this is absolutely critical to understanding the 1979 revolution. And that's not to say, not to heap blame on Reza Shah. He was a product of his time. You know, things like you know fascism. Are, these are very, 1930s political philosophies are very difficult to talk about today because we tend to very quickly associate them in our minds with some of the, the, the darkest moments of modern world history uh, and kind of Nazis and Nazis, Nazis and the Second World War and so on. But we forget that we're doing that with the hindsight of with the benefit of hindsight. In the 1920s and 1930s, these kinds of political philosophies were very, very common in many parts of the world, uh, including in the US as well, in the UK, although it didn't take hold quite as strongly in the US and in the UK as it did in, for example, Spain or Italy or Germany or other places. But this idea of a kind of looking backward to look forward, right? A kind of fascist ideology that progress and modernity will emerge from the very blood and soil of the people, from some kind of deep, deep ancient soul, right? That's been buried by the evils of X, Y, Z, whether it's, you know, uh, Jews or Arabs or other kinds of, you know, uh, easily scapegoated groups or foreign actors, whatever it might be, uh, is something that is common. You know, you see some version of it in almost every country in the in the years between the wars, especially countries that have been weakened or weakened by outside states, where there is a sense that of the country is missing its national backbone. And even in countries like Iran, where, you know, there's an appeal to almost a mythical past that you know may or may not have existed. I mean, Reza Shah comes along in the 1920s and says, you know, we need to stand up for ourselves and be proud of ourselves as an Iranian nation. Well, what he's talking about is something that might have been unrecognizable 50, 60 years earlier to the Qajars, who barely thought of themselves as leading a kind of modern nation state. But it doesn't matter. By that point, Iran, the borders are settled, and there's a feeling that, well, we need to come together and pull together and, res- and, and as a as a modern nation. And how do we do that? The appeal to religion 
doesn't make as much sense to someone like Reza Shah because that is giving a lot of power to the established uh, clergy, the ulama, mm-hmm. uh, who already have a lot of power. If he's trying to create his own power base and try to show how modern he is, how much he's like the West, how much he's like Europe, um, he's going to tap into a different strain of Iranian pride. Uh, and it's the same strain of pride that, that Mussolini is tapping into in Italy, that Franco is tapping into in Spain, that, uh, that the Nazis are tapping into in Germany. It's some kind of presumed, mythical, lost to the mists of time kind of past of this ancient, proud people that have been polluted and taken advantage of and manipulated by external powers and so on. And it makes sense that he's tapping into some of this Aryan ideology that, that you know, scapegoats Arabs and what are Arabs associated with Islam, you know. And so it's kind of like, well, you know, this is what made us weak. Now, mm-hmm. I want to emphasize, he's not a secular leader. He's a, he's a Muslim you know, he's not saying we need to, to reject Islam, just saying that, you know, Islam has no place in government and is, Islam is not the path to modernity and progress. Now, a lot of people today like to idealize Reza Shah, especially in contrast to the Islamic Republic and say, oh, he had the right idea. Uh, but it's worth remembering that, first of all, it was a product of his time, you know, and that he, secondly, that he was a tremendously dictatorial figure in his own right, brutal dictator by today's standards, killed a lot of his own people, traumatized people including women, by forcing veils off their heads and so on, to, to quote, make them modern. And it's also worth mem- remembering, yeah, like I said, he's a product of his time. You know, in the 1920s and 30s, it seems like secularism, secular fascism is, a, is the kind of, is the answer, is the way forward. Mm-hmm. You know, when that fails across the Middle East, and that and socialism and all these kinds of ideas, there is a turn in the 1970s away from all of that, a tendency to say, you know, socialism, fascism, any of these kinds of, you know, uh, ideas. These are all basically Western European imported ideas. We need to turn to our own, what we lost track of our own authentic native strength. And what is that? It's Islam. And suddenly there's a turn towards Islam, not just in Iran, but throughout the region. And that's where right. political Islam really starts to, to take off in Iran and throughout the Middle East. And so Khomeini rides that wave and he's very much a product of his time as well. You know, so it's not, you know, I think we have to be careful about reading backwards our own value judgments into all of these things. But, you know, Definitely. Before we get to 1979, I'd just like to look a bit at the period from 1941 to 79, where Reza Shah's son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, is in power after, and then, and then, I mean, really just looking after the 1953 coup. And just to look at the American perspective now, because America is becoming a bit more of a prominent actor in this in this relationship and a recurring theme with the american presidents perhaps with the exception of jimmy carter to a certain extent is this really just this classic tale of fear of communism it's this idea that everything that america does all its foreign policy decisions are because it's afraid of a country becoming communist how much do you think this is the case when we're trying to explain america's attitude and their relationship towards uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Definitely. The Cold War is so important. It's, it, it, it absolutely dominates American thinking. Right down to the end of the, the uh, Pahlavi state. I mean, it's extraordinary. In the midst of the revolution, the Carter administration is completely bemused. They, they have no idea what they're doing because they cannot conceive of this idea of religious revolution. It's not in the playbook. It's simply not in the playbook. No one, no one saw it coming. The Americans are not unique in this way. There's this it's hard for us to understand today, but there was this assumption 
that there must be an, a communist under every Ayatollah's turban. They, they couldn't, you know, the, the, the Soviets are somehow provoking this. And then when they realize that the Soviets are not provoking it, there's this feeling of, well, maybe we need to start talking to these revolutionaries because obviously the Ayatollah is not going to run the country because, you know, he's just a cleric. And they don't realize that actually that's exactly what's going to happen. Um, the, the power of religion in that moment, things were changing. The Cold War was coming to an end in some ways, uh, even before it had come to an end. It was uh, other types of ideologies were emerging that rejected all of these materialist philosophies. And you look at the writings of some of the Iranian revolutionaries, it's really striking how much they look at East and West. And, you know, remember, there's that, there's that famous slogan in the Iranian revolution, Nashari Nagarbi Jumhuri Islami. And I say it in Persian because it rhymes well in Persian. It doesn't sound good in English because it's often translated as neither East nor West, Islamic Republic. Which sounds pretty anemic but the, the <laughs> point of that is you know a pox on both your houses this idea that would would having this debate debate between socialism and capitalism you know between communism and kind of free market liberalism these are all materialist philosophies the idea is they're all focused on how to improve the material wealth of people while they're on this earth no one's looking at their spiritual existence that sounds crazy but that was that was something that, that economists and political scientists and officials, foreign policy makers weren't thinking about. They were thinking about oh, we're going to appeal to the third world, quote unquote, by, you know, showing how our ideology will make their lives better than, than, than the other side's ideology. But no one was really thinking about, well, you know, maybe there are people in the third world who actually want to have some of their own ideas. And in Iran, at least, this is the direction it went. Yeah. And that, and that ends up playing a pretty decisive role in the war as well with Iraq. The, the your description of the way uh, Iran sort of unified and mobilized against this um, external threat was very uh, bound up with this, as you say, the spiritual idea of a, a unified Islamic nation. How important do you think it is that this country was unified under the spiritual uh, religious idea uh, for its resilience during that war, which it could have very easily lost? It's a very good question. Uh, it depends on who you talk to. You know, people who write the history of the Islamic Republic today in the Islamic Republic uh, and on behalf of the Islamic Republic, that's what they would say. But I actually think that there was a lot of just straightforward nationalist feeling in the, in the Iran-Iraq war. A lot of people... Now look, clearly, religion played a very important role in motivating huge numbers of especially young boys to volunteer and run away to the trenches and give up their lives in uh, human wave attacks. Uh, you're not going to get people doing that without some, well, you could actually, without, but probably not without at least some modicum of religion um, involved, that kind of martyrdom. Um, although, as I'm saying that, I think there are examples of kind of secular martyrdom as well. I mean, you know, talk about Japanese kamikaze yep. bombers and, you know, whatever. But, you know, I think that that clearly played a role into it. Uh, in it, but I think also the over the general public support for the war, which did exist for most of the war, uh, particularly in the early days in places like Tehran, was not motivated exclusively by religion. I think there was a, a feeling of being attacked, being on on their own. Iran was very much on its own, still is very much on its own, and has been since the Islamic Republic. And it, that does something to the psyche of a nation. I think it's something much deeper than just religion. I think it's a it's a sense of mm -hmm. being resilient of being resistant of being isolated of being attacked of being victimized rightly or wrongly i mean this is just the narrative you know i'm not i cast no value judgment on any of it but this is how this is the the feeling
right? Um, and you know, maybe that's changing to some extent these days, but uh, but that has defined a lot of the history of the Islamic Republic. So from 53 to 79, America and Iran are sort of best buddies. After the revolution, there is a, a sort of a, a new player, and that is the state of Israel. And this occupies a large part of the book. And I, I'm very interested to explore just to what extent, well, firstly, the reasons that you give for why Israel is concerned about Iran being uh, friendly with America. And secondly, to what extent it is Israel that acts as the, the, the obstacle to friendship between the two nations. Yeah, I think this is often very poorly understood as well, because Israel hasn't always been so opposed to the Islamic Republic. In the 1980s, they were the ones pushing the Reagan administration to actually improve relations with Iran, helping the Reagan administration to sell weapons to Iran, and advocating for the idea that, that Iraq and Saddam Hussein were the bigger threat. Uh, that changed after the end of the Cold War. It changed with the beginning of the Arab-Israeli peace process, where hatred of Iran became a natural kind of glue between Israel and some of these so-called moderate Arab states, by which we really mean sort of pro-American Arab states. Um, and that's kind of where we've been for the last 30 years. Uh, and that's when Israel really changed its tune and, yeah, has been advocating very strongly for, uh, or rather against any kind of rapprochement between the U.S. and, and Iran. And I, I outline in the book just how effectively they've done that, actually. And the Israelis are not alone. The Gulf Arab states especially have played a lot of a large role in this. But you know, it is, I think, very clear, if you're looking closely, at just how much, how quick, uh, and how keen Israel is to introduce problems every time it looks like the US and Iran might be uh, about to improve relations, including most recently the assassination of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, the nuclear scientist, just a few months ago, when it, you know, just before Biden took office, um, when they knew that, you know, to, it would make it difficult for the Biden administration to uh, revive the nuclear deal with Iran. Yeah. And what do you think is the future of U.S.-Iranian relationships? Does it look very positive? Very hard to say. Uh, no, I don't think not. I'm not very optimistic. I'm very idealistic. I believe that these are two countries that should actually have better relations. Have no real reason not to actually. Um, but I'm not very optimistic. Um, nothing. I see. There seems to be no mo- for the for a whole lot of reasons of their own. Both these are both countries that have, I think have largely given up on the idea of each other. It's become that the enmity has become really ossified. And China's the new game in town, I mean, for both countries, I mean, in different ways. Iran has just has concluded that, or, you know, rightly or wrongly, they've concluded that there's no trusting the U.S., that you can, you know, pull out all the stops and do this nuclear deal with America, and then they'll just pull out. And what's the point of trying to get sanctions repealed if they're just going to get reimposed? Let's just turn to the future, which is China, and stand on our own feet a little bit and try to work with the Chinese and others. And then the U.S., of course, is fixated with, with uh, East Asia for its own reasons. It's very concerned about China as a rival. And it's just not, and it's doing everything it can to just not get any more bogged down in the Middle East than it already is. So uh, I just, there's not a lot of political will or energy on either either country to like sort of renew the nuclear deal to like seriously change the tone of relations. It's just going to be kind of, I think we're in for a long period of just kind of like steady as she goes and, you know, a long kind of frosty relationship between the two countries. I see. Okay. Uh, so just one final question. I asked this to everyone that I interview. Um, what are your future plans? What are you planning on working on? More books about this. Uh, I have a, this book was originally twice the length when I first, I know it's a very long book. It's about six, close to 600 pages, but it was around 1300 pages in its first draft. So there's plenty more material. 
uh, particularly for some of the early years that I'd like to spin out. Uh, some stuff on the nuclear deal maybe as well. I don't know. Possibly some other book ideas as well that I have. Uh, yeah, I've got a lot of different ideas. I'm just trying to think about the next thing. But I am keeping very busy with my day job, which is running the Middle East Center here at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Right. Good. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time, John. And uh, yeah, I greatly enjoyed your book. Great read. My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I had it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hello and welcome back. Hello again. So this is the post-interview reflections part of the podcast. And Julie and I will chat a bit about what we found most interesting in uh, my interview with John. So, yeah. Julia, why don't you go first? Yeah. Um, so, thank you very much for picking this book, actually, because I, I found it extremely rich and fascinating, and I look forward to reading it. Something that definitely stuck with me is his uh, treatment of identity making and identity in general, because he seems to give this picture whereby... Um, what's really important to nations is to have an, a strong identity, which is not controversial per se, but it seems like this having an identity is much more important than having a specific identity. Nationalism is important, but um, it it looks different in different Right. phases yeah. of history you know yeah so if when it, so it happens that iran has for political and geopolitical and historical reasons has to differentiate itself from other islamic countries then the persian nature comes out whereas when it has to take distance from the west uh, it stresses the is islamic nature so i was wondering is it that um is it that easy to mold one's identity by contrast um, mm. according to what we need? Or is it simply that Iran has a very complex pool of features from which it can pick? So I think definitely what's interesting about Iran is because of their situation, their historical situation, their political situation, their identity making is always in opposition to something. It's, it's very combative. Well, perhaps something similar could be said about every country. The characteristic thing about Iran is that it has two kinds of opponents. So, because uh, I was thinking, well, also France had to distinct, like to identify, to build its own, to build its own identity by contrasting itself to, I don't know, England. But the fact that France doesn't have another kind of opponent, didn't make it necessary for them to develop a second soul. Whereas the the, the international relationship that Iran had with, uh, in this case, the US on the one side and other Islamic countries on the other side, um, prompted it to develop two souls. Yeah, I guess... Maybe, de- I'm not sure develop is the right word, I guess, make mm-hmm. use of. Yeah. Right, because they're always there. That's very true. It's all about how they implement them. I mean, now that you're, now you just mentioned France, and maybe that's an interesting example. Maybe we're being a bit too, maybe we're not considering enough other elements. For example, I, I've often heard 
that in the early 19th century, when Napoleon sort of comes to France or takes charge of France, that he sort of emphasizes France's Roman lineage, mm. the Roman background, and the sort of evocation of that Roman um, connection that mm. France has. And I wonder if this is something that actually many nations do. Yeah. Uh, there's this shadowy, pristine, antique past which can be called upon mm-hmm. in times of change when you want to change things. Italy notoriously uh, made use of that. Um, right. During fascism, at least. But I guess what's interesting about Iran, though, in contrast to France, let's say, is, and it's just pure speculation, I'm not at all an expert, France seems, it seems that a lot of European countries can share in this ancient Roman past. A lot of them can evoke it, mm-hmm. or maybe even an ancient Greek past. Mm-hmm. Whereas Iran seems to stand out from its neighbours by being the only one that can invoke this ancient Persian past. Uh, they stand out in 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 being ancient Persian mm. uh, or having this ancient Persian lineage that other neighboring countries can't draw on. I wonder if if that has a certain effect of making you feel more unique or of making it a more distinguishing feature uh, than just the evocation of ancient Roman Europe, for example. Yeah, that's... Very fascinating, though uh, it seems to me that you are adopting a very essentialist perspective, in a way, as if um, a country is what it is, (laughs) whereas John seems to stress this identity-making process, Mm. which then raises a few questions. First of all, who makes it? And second of all, I don't know, who approves it? (laughs) And third of all, how arbitrary it is, and perhaps also how practically minded of a process Yeah, it is. I definitely think that it's a dynamic process, right? It's not as if a leader decides and then everyone becomes that thing. And it's not as if what everyone wants to be is just what the nation is. It seems to be much more of a dynamic interplay of forces. Yeah, well, definitely you should put a, li- a book on populism uh, in mm. the list. <laughs> so that we, because I suppose that that is really similar, like that the, the kind of narrative you adopt really mm. affects the, your identity. Though, of course, Iran's drawing on the Persian history is extremely more essential. Yeah, I mean, I guess a leader w- would be very unsuccessful if they tried to assert an identity that no one could identify with. So th- there does seem to be a certain boundary to what you can reasonably assert, though I guess within that boundary, people will disagree about it. What's interesting about, for example, the rule of Reza Shah, the first, the first uh, of the of the, of the Pahlavi dynasty, is that in his attempts to modernize, he made certain religious elements of society not necessary and that had a negative effect with large portions of society who saw um, religion and I guess the moral precepts that come with it as essential to the identity of the nation and so that's an interesting example of someone Reza Shah in this case emphasizing an aspect of society of the nation in an effort in a practical effort to get something 
you know, to modernize, to westernize, as he saw it. And in the process, alienating himself from certain portions of the population. Mm-hmm. And this point uh, also connects to something else we were talking about the other day um, that had to do with the role of the religion. Because you were telling me that something that you learned from this book is that religious religion was a progressive force in Iran at several points. So once again, it seems that this, there are these ideas of religion or Islam or identity that are very empty uh, in and by itself, and then they can be filled in different ways. Yeah, maybe one of the harder questions I asked John, or maybe the stupidest one, <laughs> was whether he thought there was anything particular about the Iranian mm. brand of Islam Yeah, what were you that makes there? it particularly democratic. Well, I was just really... I have to say, I was really surprised, you know, in growing up in Europe, you read about how religion is a limiting force. It's a force of conservatism. It's a force that prevents developments. And opposed to religion, we have the Enlightenment. We have new science, all these things of progression. And then you read this book and you read about the Constitutional Revolution in the early 1900s, the date escapes me right now, and the revolution in 1979. And these are all motors of change. And they're not sort of like top-down motors of change, as you might, as let's say the Inquisition was in Europe or the Protestant Reformation was. But they're ground up, they're grassroots moments of uh, motors of change. Uh, And so what I was wondering was, are there certain ideological aspects to the Iranian brand of Shia Islam? Well, that makes it particularly amenable to democracy, to progress, to something like this. I mean, seeing how things went afterwards, uh, probably not. Right, I mean, I guess... Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's a very interesting question to ask as well. Because Whether obviously... it's the same religion. Yeah, or maybe there's just... Maybe also within that there is a limit to how far it will go, to how much it will give you. Uh, maybe it was very successful in establishing parliamentarian rule and to limiting monarchical power and maybe it was very successful to pushing out American influence in Iran and giving control, maybe in scare quotes, I don't know to what extent that's true, back to Iranians. But maybe it's not sufficient yeah. uh, to the present aspirations of many Iranians. Yeah. So, you know, I I think it would be interesting to, uh, I mean, especially with what's happening now in Iran, I would like to know more about um, from this progressive force, it ended up being such an obscurantist and dictatorial force, and whether all the explanation can be found in uh, the nature of religion or whether the real explanation has to do with human corruption and yeah, for power. this is something that we didn't really get to in the interview. Unfortunately, we ran out of time. But he does talk a lot about another leader. Oh, his name escapes me again. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a very uh, a liberal theocrat mm-hmm. in this case. And he was very much in favor of certain policies that would be considered liberal, whilst also maintaining the Islamic aspect of Iran. So... I, I suspect it does have to do with a certain br- branch of clericalism taking control in the country, yeah. over possibly another branch. 
maybe there is an alternative scenario where r- Iran remains a theocracy, yeah. but is slightly more progressive. I think that from all this we can um, draw the lesson that this book is really not so much about ideals and conceptual truths as much as embodied yeah, phenomena. Definitely. Um, and and, it, and the, sorry. And it definitely muddies the water. It definitely makes things very complicated. And another another way in which we can see that this is the the direction he, it takes is that. Um, it's a book about the goodness of the relationships between Iran and the US, but it's not the kind of metaphysical goodness, yeah, right? Right, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's the goodness of international politics, of, uh, of alliances, of convenience. And in fact, I thought this was something that maybe the book doesn't really succeed in doing. So I mentioned in the introduction and we in the interview as well that one of the aims of the book is that by giving such a broad scope on US-Iranian relations that we'll see that they weren't always bad, that they didn't always hate each other and that things didn't have to be this bad or as bad as they are now. But as I was reading the book, I, I didn't really get that impression because either it's the 19th century and a bit of the 20th century where Iran is desperately trying to get America involved in its affairs and America has no interest in Iran. Sure, okay, they have a nice view, opinion of them. They, they, you know, they see Iran as the seat of ancient Persia, of culture, civilization, and the Iranians see America as this, this democratic beacon of a society that they could aspire to be. Okay, these are all goodwill Mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily good relations or at least international relations there's no active cooperation or assistance and then in 1953 you've got the cia coup and you've got effectively 50 odd years no sorry 30 years of american sort of puppeteering let's say in Mm -hmm. iran and so you either have on the one hand iran desperately trying to be friends with america and america not being interested or America being <laughs> too interested and Iran wanting them to stop being interested. But once again, my friend, maybe you're falling into a, the essentialist <laughs> trap. And maybe that is exactly what goodness in international relationships means. <laughs> well, indeed, yeah. I guess it's just that... Um, let's just say that there isn't a model of bilateral relations. Mm. Like, that, that they never relate to each other as equals, let's say, as the way as, let's say, England and America do. Maybe not that much. It's I don't like, know. Maybe England and France. Like cat and mouse. It's a that? bit like cat and mouse, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, if anything, his book highlights perhaps the inherent geopolitical limitations to friendship. I'm not sure. <laughs> but if anything, mm-hmm. it definitely doesn't tell us that... It, Let's just say there isn't a moment in history where they were best friends. And, and they both thought that the other one... <laughs> was inherently useful in some way. I mean, yeah. even in this practical, okay, that's, realpolitik that's... dimension of being able to get something out of the other, there's never a situation where they can both mutually get something out of each other, mm-hmm. the way you would think of a, a classic alliance. Yeah. So, it, yeah, if this is true, it is definitely... Um... One of the desideratum of the book is not fully met then because it is yeah. presented as a book on good relationships. Right. But to be but on the other hand, you know, 
he is right that his book does show that the relationships were not always flag burning, you know, Iranians burning the American flag. Well, though, maybe this is also because the US has not always been the US that we know now. Like something that actually I I found surprising and then I was embarrassed by finding it surprising because it meant that I didn't know that already, (laughs) is that the US was not an imperialist force for a very long time. Like it's kind of recent in its history. Um, He was uh, talking of uh, how it was perceived as a third power um, between Russia and Britain. Um, And... uh, so perhaps that they were good relationships also because the US was not this exporter of <laughs> democracy that it is now. That's definitely true. And it's no coincidence that the 1953 coup happens in an age where American isolationism has finished because mm-hmm. of World War Two, mm-hmm. And they're much more concerned about the Cold War and about, you know, they've got the whole policy of containment, of containing the spread of communism. So definitely the two things must go together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in his book, he makes a big deal of the Cold War and how the mm-hmm. Cold War is fundamental to understanding US-Iranian relationships from the 50s onwards. Well, and also uh, at the time, as I learned, <laughs> the, no one would have ever imagined that religion could have been a threat. Right. Which, again, is hard to think about, but not hard to think about just because nowadays... Uh, I mean, in recent history, it it has been a threat or perceived as such. But also, I mean, in ancient times, it was, and uh, in so many so many times, it was that it, it it's quite naive of them not to not to see that coming at all. Yeah, it's very interesting that intelligence agencies just did not believe that people would do these things in the name of religion. Yeah, they just it, it didn't enter the horizon of possibility. Yeah. That's, um... And it completely caught them off guard when it happened. Yeah. If, I mean, one thing that the book definitely does show is the incompetence of American intelligence in Iran. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they really had no idea what was going on. Okay. Which says a lot, I suppose, about their relations again. Or about the subtlety of Iranians. Indeed, yeah, yes, they're very subtle. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Julia. This was fascinating to talk about. Uh, Thank you very much for picking this book. Again, it was a very one to hear about. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for listening today. Uh, Please do check out my my website, www.pleaseexpand.com, where you can find all information about authors and books and upcoming books and upcoming episodes. You can also subscribe there. Please do follow me on whatever platform you use. It helps me out a lot. And leave a rating, leave a review. And my next episode will be with uh, Fernando Cervantes on his book, Conquistadores. It will be coming out on the 5th of December, 2022. And we'll be talking about how we should think about the conquest of the Americas by the Spanish. And it's going to be a fascinating conversation. It's a wonderful book. And I I can't wait for it. So that's all from me. I'm Helios. And I'm Julia. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.